0: Michael Phelps is perhaps the greatest swimmer of all time. He was known for his swimming abilities, but he was certainly known for his abilities to close a race. Phelps was a good finisher. And perhaps the greatest example was the 100-meter butterfly Phelps swam at the 2008 Olympics. Throughout the race, Phelps and the Serbian star, Milorad Kovic, They swam neck and neck, but as they approached the finish line, both men needed a partial stroke to reach the wall. Wilkovic chose to glide, but Phelps took an extra short stroke and drove hard into the wall. His lunge caused him to surge ahead of the Serb, beating him by one one one-thousandth of a second. Michael Phelps' narrow victory was not just an example of his unparalleled skill as a swimmer, but it showed his extraordinary determination. When Michael Phelps needed it most, he was able to dig deep down inside and find something extra to finish well. And this was like our Lord Jesus. Jesus is the greatest finisher of all time. For three and a half years, he ran his race faithfully. But in the last hours, when all the forces of hell came against him, Jesus found an extra kick. He drove hard to the end and left nothing undone. In chapter 17, verse 4 of John, Jesus prayed to the Father in heaven, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. His final words from the cross echo now across the ages. It is finished. And this should encourage you and me, for Jesus finishes what he starts, and that includes his work in our lives. Paul wrote to the Philippians, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it. What Jesus starts, he finishes He has a perfect follow-through, and that includes what he's doing in your life, your growth, your victory in Christ. As John stated so well back in chapter 13, verse 1, Jesus loved his disciples to the end. He finished well, as we'll see tonight. Chapter 18 begins. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered." Now let's start tonight with a geography lesson. Jerusalem is made up of five hills. To the north, there is Mount Scopus. To the east, the Mount of Olives. To the south, Mount Ophel. To the west, Mount Zion, and right in the center In the middle of Jerusalem is Mount Moriah, or what we call the Temple Mount. Now, three valleys are between Jerusalem's five mountains. West of Mount Zion is the Hinnom Valley. Between Mount Zion and Mount Ophel is the Triopean Valley, or in the days of Jesus, it was called the Valley of the Cheesemakers. Probably because they made cheese there, I would imagine. And then between the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives was the Valley of Jehoshaphat or the Kidron Valley. Here's an overview of Jesus' movements over his last night. First, he and his disciples, they eat Passover in the upper room on top of Mount Zion. He then walked eastward across the city, down through the lower city, Across the Kidron Valley to a garden called Gethsemane, there on the slope of the Mount of Olives. They spent the night there in the garden. It was there that he was arrested, and he was led back to Mount Zion, back up the hill, back across the valley, back up the hills in Jerusalem to the top of Mount Zion, where he was trod at the house of Pilate, I'm sorry, of Caiaphas, the high priest, the house of Caiaphas. He'll then be turned over to Pilate, who occupied the fortress of Antonio on the Temple Mount. So he goes back a little northeast toward the Temple Mount in the fortress of Antonio. From there, he was shuttled again back to Mount Zion and the palace of King Herod. You remember Pilate sort of passed him off to Herod. Herod, though, sends Jesus back to Pilate at the fortress again. And then finally, Jesus is tried, he's scourged, and he's forced to carry the cross northward toward Mount Scopus, where he is crucified on the top of Mount Moriah. Now understand, the whole old city of Jerusalem is less than one square mile. It's a very compact, a very uh, tight-knit city. Psalm 122 verse 3 says correctly, Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together. Jerusalem is a tight squeeze, you could say. It's a cramped city. Whenever we take our tours, we always stop on top of the Mount of Olives and we look back westward and I point out the path that Jesus traveled during the final hours before his crucifixion. And it's one of those moments when the light clicks on in your head. You see firsthand the topography and the geography, the proximity of the sites, and you realize how all of Jesus' movements had taken place in such a short span of time. Well, in verse 1, we're told that Jesus and his men crossed the brook Kidron. It's actually only a brook in the rainy season, in the springtime. The rest of the year, it's a dry, dusty gulch. Yet the brook in this valley is full of symbolic significance. When King David was betrayed by his son Absalom and by his friend and counselor Ahithophel, he evacuated the city by crossing the Kidron, the brook Kidron. It's interesting, both David's betrayers died dangling from a tree. You remember Absalom's hair got caught in its branches, and he was hung. Ahithophel committed suicide and hung himself. And perhaps this story, the adventures of King David, the exile of King David, perhaps this replayed in Jesus' mind. Jesus was the son of David. Perhaps this story replayed in his mind as he crossed the brook Kidron. It's interesting, Jesus was also rejected by his brothers, and he will be betrayed by his close friend. To me, it's more than ironic that Judas also ended his life hanging from a tree. The word Kidron means dark, shadowy, gloomy. The brook was polluted with runoff from the temple sacrifices, and usually its waters carried away the blood of the lambs and the goats. Imagine Jesus on this night crossing over this dark, blood-stained brook. I'm sure it reminded him that not only was he about to be betrayed, as was King David, but it also spoke to him of the sacrifice that he would make that would occur the very next morning. Well, Verse 1 tells us that Jesus went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron where there was a garden. Today, and even more so in the first century A.D., the Mount of Olives was adorned. It was covered with olive trees. And there is an ancient garden just above the valley that contains a grove of olive trees. The garden once had a press that squeezed the oil out of the olives. Gethsemane means oil press or place of crushing. Olive oil production in ancient Israel was a threefold process. The initial crushing yielded the purest oil, the virgin olive oil. Whenever I go to Israel, Kathy wants me to come home with some virgin olive oil from Israel. It's good. The oil is squeezed under the weight of a huge millstone. The liquid runoff is used to fuel the flame. Was used to fuel the flame of the menorah. It was used as the holy anointing oil. It was the purest of the oils. The olive skins, though, were that were left were then taken and they were made into a paste that was gathered up in a burlap bag and it was crushed a second time. This oil, this second crushing, became a lubricant and was used for healing purposes. The leftover pulp was then crushed a third time, and this time it was used as soap for cleansing. And here's a picture of Jesus' final hours. He fulfilled the symbolism to a T. At his initial crushing, that is Gethsemane, he acts as our anointed high priest. He intercedes for us. He prays for our unity. He is the depiction of the holiest of the oils, the anointing oil the priestly oil. At Gabbatha, or Pilate's pavement, where he finally ends up, Jesus is pressed again. He was scourged. The Romans turned Jesus' back and body into a pulp. As Isaiah said, by his stripes we are healed. His suffering has become our healing. And then finally, the leftover pulp was taken to Gogotha where Jesus was crucified for our cleansing. And for a third time, he was crushed, this time as a soap to wash away our sins, the slimiest and grimiest sins. It's interesting, earlier in the garden, aware of his future and the threefold crushing of the olive, Jesus prayed three times. Not my will, but yours be done. Verse 2 tells us, And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Apparently, this garden was a hangout for Jesus and his men while they were in Jerusalem. It's a favorite place for pilgrims today. Walk down the Palm Sunday Road, and the Garden of Gethsemane is actually on both sides of the street. To the south, there's a church, and in the courtyard, you'll find 2,000-year-old olive trees, under which Jesus may have actually prayed. North of the road is a private garden. Slip the gate attendant a few shekels, and he'll let your group enjoy a time of prayer and solitude. To me, this garden is holy ground. Imagine praying in the very place where Jesus began to be crushed and squeezed for you and me. If you haven't been to Israel, I encourage you to go and do so. And of course, Jesus knew this place. He brought his men there many times, and among his men was Judas Iscariot. Judas knew this was Jesus' hangout in Jerusalem. He figured this was where Jesus and his disciples would camp that night. So we read, Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. This word translated detachment is the equivalent of the Latin spira, which referred to a Roman military division. A spira numbered between 200 and 600 troops. This posse was made up of temple police, Jewish police. And notice they come armed. They have weapons among them. Why were they so afraid? Judas is spearheading 200 guards armed with spears. Are they fearful of a preacher and some fishermen turned disciples? Well, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him. And what a fascinating insight that is. Nothing happens this night that catches Jesus by surprise. Knowing all things that would come upon him. He was already aware. Remember, Jesus is in control of every situation he was in. He's in control of this ordeal. We're told he went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? Now he says this to defend his disciples. Jesus didn't want them arrested too. He knows what's going to happen to him. And he knows the issues the Jews have are with him, not with his disciples. And so here he's protecting his disciples. Well, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now, when he had said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, here's a miracle that only John mentions. The power of Jesus' presence, his personal presence, physically bowled them over. They were floored, literally. They fell to the ground. And notice the phrase that Jesus uses to address them. I am he. Remember, this was his claim to deity. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, Yahweh identified himself to Moses from the burning bush with the name, I am who I am. For Jesus to use this name, it was like shooting them with a stun gun. It knocked them on their backs. And let me say, the force of Jesus' presence still can have a flooring effect at times. You know, throughout the Scripture, when people come in contact with God, they tend to hit the deck. And yet there's an important distinction. An unbeliever will always fall backwards, whereas a believer will always fall forward. With an unbeliever, God has to bend their stiff neck. He has to break a stubborn backbone. While a believer, when faced with God, will drop to his knees and bow his face to the ground. Don't fall for what the charismatic groups refer to as slain in the spirit. This is when the evangelist woos you into a trance-like numbing. And then he slaps you on the forehead. And the suggestion is for you to tumble backwards into the arms of the catchers. People who advocate this practice use this verse as a proof text for their phenomena, but this event and their event are two entirely different experiences. Verse seven Then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way, that the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Now again, what Jesus seems to care about the most are his own disciples. I mean, think about it. He's about to be arrested, tried, in a mock trial, tortured, crucified, But what is his priority? It's the safety of his followers. That's impressive. Then Simon Peter, of course, he has a different set of priorities, having a sword, and notice they were armed, by the way. Even the faithful followers of Jesus were armed. Peter had a sword. They drew it, and they struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Brave but impulsive Peter is trying to protect Jesus. All the while, Jesus is the one protecting Peter. You know, you'll save yourself a lot of headaches if you remember that Jesus doesn't need you or me to protect him. Jesus is a big boy, he doesn't need us, he can take care of himself. He has every situation under control. Peter was the one here who was out of control. Now, perhaps Malchus was the first to lay a hostile hand on Jesus. And when Peter saw it, he couldn't stand it. He pulled out his sword. He jumped up. He went to chop Malchus' head right down the middle. He was going to split his head right down the middle. All of a sudden, Malchus spun out of the way at the last minute, and Peter nicked off his ear. It's Luke, the physician, who adds, Jesus touched his ear and healed him. Isn't that amazing? Jesus cleans up Peter's dirty work. Jesus loved Peter, but he even loved Malchus. He even loved his enemies. In fact, Jesus is about to die on the cross for Malchus. He doesn't want him injured now. It's provocative that the last miracle of Jesus' earthly ministry was to heal a wound inflicted by one of his own disciples. And sadly, that's the miracle that he's had to repeat over and over again for the last 2,000 years. Well-meaning saints like you and me too often take up a sword to fight and forget that the master took up a towel to wash feet and to serve. Well, verse 11 tells us, Then Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into the sheaf. Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? Peter stands there holding a sword in his hand while Jesus has a cup in his hand. And his cup is sloshing over with pain and rejection. In fact, he's about to drink of this cup deeply. Peter, on the other hand, knows nothing about the victories that are won through suffering. He spent his whole life trying to avoid suffering. All he understands are blades and swords. It's been said, Peter fought the wrong enemy, used the wrong weapon, had the wrong motive, and achieved the wrong result. Jesus didn't come to crush his enemies, but to love them and to die in their place. You know, Abraham Lincoln once said, the only way to truly get rid of an enemy is to turn him into a friend. How true. This was Jesus' strategy. He loved his enemies, and he wants to turn them into friends. And this should be our objective. You know, Paul told the Corinthians, our weapons are not carnal, but they're spiritual. Peter chose the right weapon on the day of Pentecost. Remember, he took another sword. This time, it was the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Peter spoke the truth of God's word in love, and 3,000 souls were saved. Well, verse 2 tells us Then the detachment of troops, and the captain, and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. They handcuffed the Son of God. Can you imagine? Jesus came to set us free from the chains of sin and guilt and addiction and death. We said thanks to Jesus by slapping a ball and chain around his ankle. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. In a political maneuver, Rome had stripped the office of the high priest from Annas in 15 A.D., It had made his son-in-law, Caiaphas, the acting head of Judaism. But Annas was still a very powerful person in the Jewish community, and so he was the first to interrogate Jesus. They brought him to Annas. Jesus is actually going to be tried five times over the next few hours. The first before Annas, then before Caiaphas and the Jewish Sanhedrin, or their Supreme Court, then by Pilate then by King Herod, and then finally Herod will send him back to Pilate where he'll be tried for the fifth time. Two times in religious court and three times in a civil court. Today in Jerusalem you can actually visit Caiaphas' house and you can go to the dungeon where Jesus was held on this very night. You can see the place where he was chained. It's pretty powerful, pretty emotional. Now, it was Caiaphas who advised the Jews that it was expedient that one man should die for the people. Remember, this is a reference to that accidental prophecy that Caiaphas had uttered back a few chapters ago. We studied it back in chapter 11, verse Verse 15. And Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now, this Unnamed disciple was probably John, our author. John does this often. Due to his humility, he often refers to himself in the third person. But maybe not. We're not sure who this other disciple was. We're told, though, now that disciple, this unnamed disciple, was known to the high priest. And he went with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. If it was John, evidently John had some priestly connections. He was able to pull some strings to get he and Peter into the courtyard where they could actually witness the trial of Jesus. It turned out to be a heartbreaking experience. You know, some scholars believe this unnamed disciple was actually Nicodemus or possibly Joseph of Arimathea. They both were priests, maybe even members of the Sanhedrin who had connections with the Jewish hierarchy. We're not actually sure who the identity of this unnamed disciple was. Well, at first, Peter stood at the door outside. Then the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to her who kept the door and brought Peter in. Peter's actually led into the courtyard by this little girl. Then the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, You are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? Peter said, I'm not. Uh Uh-oh, strike one. And the servants and officers who had made a fire of coal stood there, for it was cold, and they warmed themselves. Early spring in Jerusalem, man, it can get cold. The nights can get chilly. And Peter stood with them and warmed himself. That's when the scene shifts back to the trial inside the house. The high priest then asked Jesus about his disciples and his doctrine. Jesus answered him, I spoke openly to the world. I always taught in synagogues and in the temple where the Jews always meet. And in secret I have said nothing. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. Indeed, they know what I said. Hey, the ministry of Jesus wasn't some clandestine operation. All he had done, all he had said, had been done openly and publicly. You know, it's been said, deceit must wear clothes, but truth loves to go naked. Hey, truth has nothing to hide. The truth Jesus taught, he had laid out before everyone. He had put it before everyone to scrutinize. On numerous occasions, the Jewish leaders had sent delegations to listen to Jesus and to ask him questions. By now, they were actually experts in what Jesus had done and in what Jesus had said. Their current questioning isn't to discern more information or even to derive a verdict. That's already been settled. It was to find a reason to accuse him and justify their desire to execute him. Verse 22. When he had said these things one of the officers who stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand saying, do you answer the high priest like that? You know, the high priest was the equivalent of the Jewish, was like a Jewish pope. He had tremendous authority and supposedly a hotline to God. And so he was usually addressed with a string of accolades and flatteries. And here, unlike everyone else, Jesus refuses to kiss up to this guy. He speaks bluntly. Jesus is unimpressed by credentials and someone's office and their reputation. Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if well, why do you strike me? Jesus is appealing to a standard Jewish legal practice. In a Jewish trial, both sides had the opportunity to present witnesses. The fact that here Jesus is being accused without being allowed to offer a single witness on his behalf is a sure sign that he's being railroaded. Here he's asking for a fair trial, in essence. Annas, though, ducks the question. He passes the buck. Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. In verse 25, the scene shifts again from the trial inside the house back to the courtyard and to Peter. Now Simon Peter stood and warmed himself. Therefore they said to him, You're not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of him whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Oh no, Malchus has a cousin. Here's a relative after revenge. Maybe he's got a sword. This time Jesus might not be around for a reattachment. And Peter panics. His faith is overwhelmed by his fears. And in verse 27, Peter then denied again. How many times was this? It was the third. And immediately, <laughs> a rooster crowed. One night, Mac and I, we were watching the evening news when we heard of the death of a 96-year-old named Kermit Taylor. Tyler, I'm sorry, Tyler. He was an Air Force pilot stationed at Pearl Harbor. In fact, Tyler was manning the radar on the morning of December 7th, 1941. An arrival of a group of B-17 bombers from the mainland were scheduled that morning. So when Tyler saw the large blip on the radar screen, he said to a coworker, don't worry about it. Tyler was new to his job, and planes from San Diego were expected that day. But the radar blip turned out to be the first wave of Japanese fighters and bombers. And the quote, don't worry about it, has gone down in infamy. I'll never forget watching that news report. And when the news was over, Mac turns to me and he says, Wow, how would you like to live the rest of your life with that mistake on your resume? I can think of only one failure that would be worse. Peter denied his Lord. Luke tells us that after the rooster crowed, Peter went out and wept bitterly. He convulsed. He sobbed with tears. You know, in a sense, Peter's denial was not much different than Judas's betrayal. We don't know what motivated Judas, but likely it wasn't fear. Peter proved a coward. Imagine the scar that Peter could have carried for the rest of his life. The guilt was so heavy that Judas couldn't bear it, he went out and killed himself. What was the difference? Well, Jesus had mercy on Peter, and Peter showed a heartfelt repentance. And Jesus not only forgave Peter, but he recommissioned him, put him back in the ministry, restored him to what he'd been called to originally. He was restored to the point to where now a rooster crow signals the dawning of a new day for Peter and for us. Well, verse 28 tells us, Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas to the praetorium. And it was early morning. The Latin word praetorium referred to the Roman headquarters there in Jerusalem. It was located on the northwest corner of the Temple Mount platform. It was a military compound called the Fortress of Antonio. If an uprising occurred among the Jews in Jerusalem, it would probably start in the temple. And this is why the Romans wanted a presence nearby to monitor what was happening in the temple precincts. They wanted troops in place just in case. During the Passover, Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, journeyed to Jerusalem from his home base in Caesarea on the Mediterranean coast. Apparently, Pilate stayed in the Antonio when he was in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. He must have slept in the fortress that night since Jesus arrives here in the wee hours of the morning, and he happens to be home. Understand, the Jews involved Pilate only because it was necessary for them. This was a marriage of convenience. For centuries, the Jews had executed people for capital crimes and for blasphemy through their own means, death by stoning. That was the Jewish form of execution. But in 19 AD, the Roman occupation stripped the Jews of their right to capital punishment. So by the time of Jesus, all executions were now carried out by the Romans. Normally, the Jews hated Pilate. And Pilate, quite frankly, hated the Jews. Pilate had zero respect for Jewish religion and tradition. He was uncooperative at best. The Jews had sent formal complaints to the emperor in Rome because of Pilate's previous behavior. See, Pilate's job was to keep the peace and to placate the Jews. At the time, he was inclined, because of their complaints, he was inclined to work with the Jews. Maybe even do them a favor. Pilate's thinking, wait a minute, if I scratch their back, then maybe they'll scratch my back. So the Jews bring Jesus to Pilate. But they themselves did not go into the praetorium, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. This is how much the Jews thought of the Romans. They would not even go under the same roof with an unclean Gentile. That's how much they hated Gentiles, and Romans in particular. The Jews believed that sin was a communicable disease. Enter the house of a Gentile, and you would be contaminated. And they were especially cautious at Passover. Earlier in the week, they had rid their houses of leaven. They had a little ritual for that. That means that an Orthodox Jew who entered a house that had not been purged of leaven would be excluded from celebrating the most important feast of the year, the Passover. Of course, it didn't matter to the Jews that they were about to kill the Son of God but let's not set foot in an unclean house. I mean, this is how blind the Jews were to the truth. Well, Pilate then went out to them. This Pilate is an interesting character study. When the Roman governor crawled out of bed that morning, he had no idea the enormous decision that he would face before the day was done. What he thought was just another day at the office turned out to be the most colossal day in human history. And you know, this can happen to us at times. It's when you least expect it that you're presented with an enormous challenge and suddenly you face a life-changing opportunity. What will you do? Sad to say, Pilate failed to rise to the challenge. Pilate's initial approach to the Jews was curt informal and routine, and he said, what accusation do you bring against this man? Pilate will soon discover that there's nothing routine at all about this case. It's unlike any decision he would ever make. Pontius Pilate encountered his encounter with Jesus that Passover, ended up shaping his life for both now and for all eternity. You know, I used to tell my kids that life is like playing right field. You know, you can be in right field for eight innings and two outs and never see a ball come your way. But all of a sudden, with the game on the line, first time in three hours, suddenly you're not only in the game, you are the key focus of the game. That ball is coming straight towards you. Will you catch it or will you not? And it's interesting... The chances of you catching it will improve if you had done the right thing every other time that it didn't matter. You're ready when it does matter. And, and this is true of life. You know, how do you prepare? You can't. How do you prepare for these big moments? It's by making every moment special. It's by being faithful every moment. It's by doing the little things well. It's by being faithful in the little things. Then when the big moment comes, you'll be ready. Well, When the Jews respond, they don't really have an accusation. Pilate asked them, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered and said to him, if he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him up to you. It's kind of a sassy attitude. They try to intimidate the governor. They're basically saying, you should take us at our word. We wouldn't be insisting on his death if he wasn't an evildoer. Then Pilate said to them, you take him and judge him according to your law. And this was Pilate's first attempt to pass the buck. He had no idea, though, that they were interested in a death sentence. Therefore, the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. Obviously, that's what they were after. But God had purposes in mind as well, that the saying of Jesus might be fulfilled, which he spoke, signifying by what death he would die. In reality, Messiah's death by Roman crucifixion was a fulfillment of the scripture. You remember, Jesus had said earlier, here in John, he had said, if I am lifted up, he was speaking of the cross. Jesus had predicted his crucifixion in advance. Despite the Jewish tradition of stoning, the Old Testament was consistent with its prediction that Messiah would hang from a tree. Psalm 22, you should go back and read it tonight. Psalm 22 describes Jesus' crucifixion a thousand years before the Persians even invented such a thing as crucifixion. It's amazing the faithfulness of God's word. Throughout this trial, the Jews and Pilate, they're thinking they're calling the shots. In reality, they're all just pawns in God's plan. Well, verse 33, then Pilate entered the praetorium again, called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, and he does so with a penetrating question that had to have probed deep into Pilate's heart. He says, Are you speaking for yourself about this? Or do others tell you this about me? In other words, Pilate, do you want me to be your king? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Now, Pilate is a consummate politician. He's a secular Roman. He hates being pulled into these religious squabbles. Like people today, he doesn't want to think about spiritual issues. Verse 36, Jesus says, he answers, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. The kingdom of God isn't a political entity. It has no thrones or palaces or armies or even borders. It comes without pomp and circumstance, Jesus is king over a spiritual kingdom, not a physical, tangible one. Thus, his kingdom operates according to spiritual principles. Jesus' kingdom is not about law and force and politics and power plays and taxation, which were the pillars of Rome, things that Pilate understood. Jesus is saying that his kingdom is not of this world. The modus operandi in the kingdom of Jesus is love. Jesus is the king who gains by giving, who conquers by serving, who seizes by sacrificing. Jesus' kingdom is based on truth rather than brute force, mercy rather than muscle, forgiveness rather than resistance. Caesar was king of Rome, Jesus is the king of hearts. Pilate therefore said to him, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born, and for this cause I have come into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? And here, Pilate echoes the cynicism of the Roman philosophers. The Greek and Romans, they believed in truth. They just just disagreed on what it was. In contrast today, the so-called philosophers, they've denied its very existence. We're told there's no such thing as absolute truth. You know, it's interesting how our modern world is overloaded with facts. Man, click a search engine. There's info galore. Yet in the midst of the facts, why is it that we've lost sight of the truth? It's ironic. Pilate asks, what is truth to the only person who could ever really solve the riddle? And yet Pilate doesn't even give Jesus an opportunity to respond. Don't give up on your quest for the truth until you've listened to the one person with the answers. I mean, Jesus said earlier, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We're told, and when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews and said to them, I find no fault in him at all. Pilate literally jerks away from Jesus because he's afraid to let Jesus answer his question. Francis Bacon commented on it this way he wrote, What is truth? said jesting, Pilate, and would not stay for an answer. Pilate seemed afraid of the truth. Another author puts it this way, the truth that makes men free is for the most part the truth which men prefer not to hear. Place Pilate under a magnifying glass and his thinking gets clearer to us. Pilate knew that Jesus was innocent, but for fear of the Jews... He refused to release him. See, with the truth that he did know, he lacked the courage to obey. And this is the secularist, this is the humanist's problem today. It's not that truth doesn't exist. It does. It most certainly does. But living the truth requires more courage than denying the truth. People would rather deny it than actually live it. In verse 39, Pilate remembers an old Jewish tradition. He says, But you have a custom that I should release someone to you at the Passover. Pilate was bothered by what he sensed in Jesus. Pilate gives, I mean, Matthew gives us some additional information on this. You remember Mrs. Pilate had been warned in a dream not to condemn Jesus. Pilate might not have fully understood Jesus' identity, but he saw enough in him to know that Jesus was no ordinary man. The governor had questioned the truth, yet while he was with Jesus, he felt closer to the truth than he ever had before. Pilate knows that Jesus is not deserving of death, so he starts looking for a loophole, for a custom. And there was an old arrangement that allowed for the Romans to appease the Jews at Passover by releasing to them a prisoner of their own choice. Now, Pilate still doesn't realize the political ploy being played on him here. He expects the Jews will ask for Jesus' release, especially when given an ugly alternative. I mean, this other option that he offers is a bandit. I mean, one of the baddest of bad guys. We're talking a terrorist type. His name was Barabbas. And so Pilate asked the crowd, Do you therefore want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And of course he's expecting them to say yes. He's shocked by their answer. Then they all cried again saying, Not this man, but Barabbas. And the last line proves that hatred is illogical. Now Barabbas was a robber. All Jesus did was help and heal and love and deliver and stand for what's right. But Barabbas broke the rules at the expense of innocent people. He was an indiscriminate thief and bandit. Who in their right mind would unleash a Barabbas on society? Pilate figured that even the Jews would enjoy the fact that Barabbas was off the streets. And yet the screaming crowd was not In their right mind. Hatred and jealousy were in control. Pilate underestimated their madness. This is where chapter 18 closes. In essence, a mob boss gets a walk while the healer and savior is led to be scourged and crucified. In one sense, it was a travesty of justice. In another sense, Justice was finally being served. For your sin and my sin is about to be judged. It's about to get the penalty that it deserves.